and we're going to do a uh, message today. We've been working through the Baptist distinctives. Uh, we've looked at biblical authority. We've looked at the autonomy of the local church, what it means for a local church to be self-governed uh, underneath Christ as our head. I hope that makes sense to you. I think that's vital and that's a scriptural doctrine. Uh, then the last time we looked at the priesthood of the believers, and I, I, I felt that, that the Lord really got into that. And I encourage you, if you didn't get that message, that you go online and you listen to that if you can. I think it's really helpful just to understand who, your place within the economy of Christ and, and how, how you can draw near to him, just have that access and how we're responsible for that access as well. So I encourage you to do that. Uh, now we're up to letter T, we went Baptist, and so we're up to letter T, and we're going to look at the two church ordinances. And uh, we believe as Baptists that there's two church ordinances, not three. If there was a third one, what would that be? What, what have people tried to push into an ordinance for the local church? Foot washing. Foot washing. <laughs> you know, I thought, wow, I'm glad we don't have to do that. <laughs> it, it doesn't fit the qualification because uh, the Lord, when he washed the disciples' feet, uh, he was bringing forth a bigger truth of service to one another. And so if all he's doing is requiring us to watch one another's feet, then we really don't have to serve each other. And so the, the truth was that we need to serve one another. And, uh, and, um, and we see in that passage that it's talking about in the plural form, that if you do these things, it's not talking about thing, it's not talking about washing feet, it's talking about serving and, and helping one another. That's what, that was the emphasis of his, um, uh, of his uh, illustration with the foot washing. Uh, so we don't count that as an ordinance. And plus, it doesn't represent the gospel truths. It is not gospel related. And we know that the, the, the uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper both link to salvation. And it has a lot to do with the gospel and, that, and the place of the gospel in our life. And how we view that. And so we'll look at that a little bit today as we look at baptism, our first uh, church ordinance. Um, in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, uh, we see this uh, verse that we've used so often. But it says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 3, souls. And so in that small little verse, there's a lot of doctrine there. Uh, the first thing is, is that the people gladly received the message that Peter preached, and that was that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, that he died for their sins, that he was resurrected. That's what we call the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1-4. And so they gladly received that message. Uh, they didn't reject Christ. And so because they did that, they identified in believers' baptism. So the ones that received it were baptized. And so many times, like, in, and the, what they were battling, what we were battling over the centuries with being Baptist, was the fact of what's called pedobaptism. That you're looking at the third century, uh, the introduction of this doctrine, and a little bit earlier as well, um, uh, where they would baptize babies. And the whole the whole push behind that was that they looked at that as now you're a part of our church. And so many times uh, today, if you talk to someone door to door and they're Catholic, they say, oh, I'm Catholic, yet they haven't set foot in the Catholic Church for, you know, decades, uh, but they're Catholic because they were baptized as a baby. So it claims them, and they, they take that as, a, as an ownership, you know? And so the, the church knew that, and that's why they were, they were grabbing them young, bringing them into their church so that they wouldn't go other places, amen? 
And so that's the whole thing about doing it as a baby. Of course, the doctrine that surrounded that afterwards was the, the fact that if you bring your baby and get them baptized based upon your uh, input as a parent and your promises, what will happen is the original sin of Adam will be erased from their record. And that's what they associate with pedobaptism. And so from that point on, if I don't got to worry about Adam's sin anymore, now I'm just dealing with my own sin. And that's why they have the sacraments to deal specifically with present sin as you go through life. And that's why all the way to the end, to the last rites, and then after the last rites, you got purgatory so that the priest has to pray out of there. So it's all about just present sin at that point. And we know that that's uh, absolutely not true. Uh, the way the scripture tells it is that when Jesus Christ died for you, it erased all sin, including Adam's sin, uh, your sin, your future sin, all sin. <laughs> you know, he became the propitiation uh, for that sin. And so, but, but it doesn't make for a lot of control when you tell people that if you receive Christ, all your sin is dealt with. And, you know, if I can hold a little bit of uh, hellfire and brimstone over you, it makes you a better church member, <laughs> you know. And so, but that's not the way we do things. I believe you're a far better church member when you believe you are saved and you know that you're saved forever. And uh, that's a motivator that, that ought to motivate all your services, loving God uh, from your heart, not fearing whether you're going to hell or not. Amen. That's not a right motive. And so it's been very controversial over the centuries, baptism. Uh, I find in the ministry even now, uh, the most time I get a hard time is, is through the doctrine of baptism. You can lead a thousand people to Christ, no problem. But as soon as they identify in baptism, that's where the rub comes. <laughs> you know, the devil knows that because when you identify in baptism, you're identifying with Christ in a public way and, and Satan hates that. Uh, he doesn't want you to identify with Christ. He wants you to run away from Christ. He wants to ruin your testimony for Christ. And so, so the baptism is a big deal. And that's where you're, you'll probably find, or you did find, uh, maybe when you got saved, that's where you battled more. Not in getting saved, but in getting baptized, you know. And that's the fight. And Satan fights tooth and nail to keep you from identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, even though it has nothing to do with you going to heaven or hell. But it has to do with you reflecting who Jesus Christ is to the world and to that church and, and making you a part of that local assembly. And he doesn't want you in a church. He wants you apart from the church. He wants you as a lone ranger, you know. And uh, that's not, you, you ought not want that. You ought to be a part of the body of Christ. Uh, you know, you're just one part. Uh, each one of us are members, the Bible says, in particular. That means that we all have different functions. And so not one person here can do everything. But as we are together in one body, just like your body, you know, your, this hand can do things, and this hand, and this foot, and, and so forth. Your ears and your eyes, they all have different functions. And that's the same way it is when people are added to the body of Christ. They all have different functions, which makes the body function in a proper way. Amen? And so the, uh, the, the name Baptist, like I said last time, came from a term that people came to recognize as Anabaptist. Anabaptists, we didn't name ourselves. Like, we didn't say, hey, we're Anabaptists. Uh, that never was a part of our vocabulary. We, we just uh, kind of did what we were supposed to do. We called ourselves Bible believers, Christians, whatever. But you, it was the ones that we were rebaptizing that called us Anabaptists. It was the Catholic Church that named us, all right? Because, oh, those are those rebaptizers, you know? Now, many times it's, oh, you Baptists, you know? I, I said we ought to change our name to you Baptist Church, you know? 
you Baptists just think you're right. You Baptists this, you Baptists that. But they called us rebaptizers because we would rebaptize those that, they, that were baptized as babies for the simple principle that they weren't saved. And you only get baptized after salvation. And so if you were baptized before your salvation, whether even it was an immersion or by Baptist church, I don't care where the bap- baptism was, you need to get baptized again. Because it's, it's an expression of an inward condition. It's something that you're testifying of that has happened in your heart. So if it didn't happen, then you need to, you know, make sure that happens first and then testify of that in your believer's baptism. Amen? And so I would never receive a baptism for membership if the person wasn't saved before they got scripturally baptized. Okay, that's one of the qualifications. It just doesn't work that way. Um, uh, let's move on here. So over the centuries, then, it became, it stuck with us, uh, Anabaptists. I mean, it became a big movement. It recognized many different uh, people. It isn't like it was a denomination. That's not what it was. It was just a whole bunch of people that followed the scriptures and just baptized those that needed to be baptized. And they would fall into that category of called, being called Anabaptists. And we started dropping the Anna because for us, we don't want to call ourselves rebaptizers because we're saying, hey, this is the first legitimate baptism you've had, not the second. And so we didn't like the rebaptizers. We wanted just Baptists. You know, sure, we're Baptists, but we're not rebaptizers. You know, we're not interested in baptizing people more than they have to be baptized, but we want to make sure that the baptism you have is appropriate and authoritative. Amen. Like I said that one time in my first ministry, uh, there was a lady that was already a member of our church. And I was preaching on baptism. She came to me after the service and says, Pastor, you need to baptize me. I says, what do you mean? You've been a member here before I even became a pastor. And she says, yeah, but the thing is, my dad baptized me in the backyard, in the, in the creek or in the river. <laughs> and dad, that's not baptism. I mean, you can go to your bathtub at home. You can say, Dad, can you put me under the water? That is not a scriptural baptism because it has a lot to do with the local assembly. And it has to, it's based, it's a local church ordinance. Uh, And this is the whole thing. The problem arises where this doctrine of universal church has crept in. Uh, Universal church is, everybody just thinks they're a part of the church. It doesn't matter if you go to a church or belong to a church, I'm a part of the church. Now, in a a, uh, sense, that's true because we'll all be brought up before the Lord and we're going to be a part of that glorious church one day. That's absolutely true. But there is no functioning universal church. The church was given to function on earth. How can you function as a universal body? Uh, I mean, who's going to discipline the people that need to be disciplined if we're all kind of lone rangers, a part of an invisible body? Uh, the Bible talks about that. Who's going to send out missionaries? Who, who, who's going to pray together and, and, uh, and vote and make sure that these things are done properly and following proper scriptural standards and so forth? In a universal system, that doesn't work. That's why the Lord brought us into a local body. The local body has, has boundaries. You've got to have boundaries. That's why when God made Israel a nation, he didn't just say, just go out and be a nation somewhere. He says, I'm going to bring you into a land, and these are the boundaries. Because they needed to have boundaries in order for that country to pull all the garbage out and to shine as a light within those boundaries. And that's why their success was based upon what they allowed within the boundaries of their land. 
had nothing to do with what was going on outside the boundaries, had everything to do with what was going on inside the boundaries, amen? And as soon as they messed up and as soon as they started worshiping idols, what did God do? Took them out of the boundary. He says, now you don't even qualify to be in the boundary, you know? Left the land vacant. And that's what he does with churches too. So this local church has boundaries and those boundaries are doctrinal boundaries and that's how we keep ourselves pure. That's what makes the church functional. So it's, there's no function unless there's a doctrinal boundary in your life. Amen. Uh, we've had people that have just said, well, I'm going to go start a church. And they had no doctrinal boundary. You see, what happens is, is when you're sent out from a local church, you, you're taking the doctrine that you've, that you've been taught and you're bringing that into a new system or a new place for, to establish a lighthouse. So if you don't have that doctrinal boundary, you just say, I'm going to go start a church, that again is some this, this kind of universal mentality. Uh, there was a fellows that tried to do that, and I told them that before they started. I says, you're doomed. You're doomed. It's not going to work. Because you have no doctrinal standard to keep your church strong. You have no boundaries. They thought, oh, yeah, we, we all believe the King James Bible. Well, that, that's just not enough, <laughs> you know, because ultimately when it came down to that preacher started preaching things that he wanted to preach, and, it, and this guy said, well, I don't agree with that. Another guy, well, I don't agree with that. Also, nobody's agreeing with one another, and they're all a part of the same church. Amen? You know what makes this church effective, right? We can be of one mind, you know, one spirit, one mouth, glorifying God. We all say the same things. This whole thing about hodgepodge debating and whether, well, let's just throw whatever we want to, that's not scriptural, you know. And, and folks are disappointed sometimes. I don't let them become a member because their doctrines are just off the wall. I say, sorry, you, you just don't fit. I, I, we can't allow you to be a part of this because you don't agree with the boundaries that the Lord has set for our local assembly. And so that's very important. And um, so... We'll, we'll rebaptize or baptize those that were baptized as babies that weren't saved when they were baptized. Of course, they weren't saved at eight days old or nine, whatever the day is that they, they do that. Um, we baptize those that have been baptized under a false authority. And so you can mean it with all your heart, but if it has a false authority, it, it doesn't mean anything in, in relation to the local assembly. And so when we baptize or we take somebody on as a membership and we say, Oh, they've been baptized in this Baptist church is because that church is of like faith with us. They have the same boundaries as us. Amen? And so that's how we transfer them over. And so it's not just anybody that's been baptized anywhere, you know, because authority is based upon doctrine. And so we have to investigate the fact of, well, is that place that you were involved with? I remember I had an old fellow that came to me, and he just wanted to be a part of our church. And, uh, and the only problem is his baptism was by Jehovah's Witnesses. And he just loved that preacher, that Jehovah's Witness guy. And to him, it was like total, you know, sacrilege to get rebaptized since he loved this preacher so much. And, and, and so that's what became authoritative to him. And, you know, and I know, man, I've done this long enough. You, when you're tipping, tiptoeing around baptism, man, you're ready for something to blow up. People I thought were the most sweetest people on earth become, <laughs> you know, when you start questioning the validity of, of the authority of their baptism. And so, so many times we have to. We have to say, hey, we can't. And that's what I told this fella, and I said it as nicely as I can. It says, would you consider being baptized? And, 
And before that came out of my mouth, because I think he was expecting it, he blew up sky high. Yeah, never talked to me again. Never came back to church. You know, I mean, what do you do? I mean, you're not going to, you know, just because you want to give, give in to people's desires, you're going to start changing the doctrine of your church, you know. And so I just want you to know that because not every baptism is authoritative. And we'll look at that in this lesson. What, what makes it an authoritative baptism, you know? Is it because your dad baptized you? Is it because you got wet in the back creek? Or is it because this guy is called a preacher? Folks, you know, outside of this local church, if I went and baptized somebody, it means nothing. So if, if I, as a pastor, left this church as a pastor, I can't just go baptize somebody because the baptism is a local church ordinance. It's not a preacher ordinance. It, it's a local church. It belongs to you. It belongs to this church. And so when we present someone for membership, whether it be by baptism or by transfer or whatever, you're saying we accept the authority of this church that it, they came from. You know? And if, we, and if we accept the authority of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Lord help us, we'd probably lose our lighthouse real quick like. Amen? Because I think we could become part and parcel with that type of doctrine and we start accepting all these things. Amen? And, and that's very dangerous. And so please uh, be merciful to me as I tread through these waters with people. You know, it's not easy. and It's not like I'm trying to get, get in trouble or trying to be difficult with people. I really am just seeking to, for the purity of our local assembly. And uh, not just for this year, but we're talking about for 20, 30, 50, 100, 200 years down the road. The decisions we make right now are going to impact us. And we're going to set a precedent for the rest of our existence. And so I know it's difficult when we have to do things like that, but uh, you, you just have to. You know, it's not always a pleasant thing to deal with, and I know that. I baptized, uh, I think I counted up at least 170, 180 people in my, in my career as a, as a pastor. And out of those, there's been several ones I say, man, that was tough. And it took a long time to get into the place where they understood, you know, and all kind of dynamics, even guys from Baptist churches. I remember this guy was from a Baptist church, and I talked to him, and they, they were messed up in their doctrine. And I just said, you know, they wouldn't accept our baptism, that church, and yet he wanted us to accept his bap that baptism. Well, the thing is, their gospel doctrine was out of, was out of whack. It, was, it wasn't pure. And I said, no, we can't accept that because they're not authoritative. And he just couldn't get that. We're Baptists. It was immersion. <laughs> you're rebaptizing people that have been immersed yes absolutely because you cannot just tie yourself to every movement that's out there you've got to keep your church pure it's a local church ordinance and so when you're joining the church through the baptism it, it's, it's, it's a very special thing because the people in the church are witnessing this and they're seeing it with their very eyes you testifying of the Christ that we're teaching and we believe in here and we identify with amen and so that's why we're careful when we take other memberships as well. That church better be exactly like us. If they're not, then there's a problem. Then we have to wade through that. And each situation is specific. I don't just blanket, you know, some people do that. I think the brighter movement would probably say, well, baptize everybody. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you're from. I I've not gone that far, and I don't think I want to, <laughs> you know. But, you know, I believe like faith like faith, and we'll look at some of those qualifications. So number one, we're going to look at the meaning and the mode of baptism. Now, the Greek definition in the Bible is the word baptizo. 
That's the word where that came from. It was transliterated in your King James Bible to the word baptized. So the word baptized didn't exist until the English Bible was written, and that word baptizo, which was Greek, was transliterated into the English language. Uh, it became a word based upon the Greek word. All right? And so that was the choice that was made. So it was, it was, it was that instead of translating it dipped or immersed. All right? So when you, when you hear the word baptized in the Bible, it's always referring to being dipped or immersed, and it's, it's a word that's been transliterated from the Greek language. It brings us back to the source of what that, what that word means. This has always been the definition of baptism. It's never just been, oh, that's a religious ordinance. It doesn't matter what you do with it. It's just the title of a religious ordinance. Uh, no, it's a practical word that was used every day in the Greek language, in the kitchens of all types of Greek mothers as they were jarring pickles and as they were dyeing their clothes and so forth, they were using the word baptizo. They were putting the pickles into the jar. They were putting the shirt into the vat to change the color. And it had to, if you're going to change the color of that shirt, you're going to have to put it all in there or you're going to have part of it not colored. Amen? So they would baptizo. They would immerse it into that color. They would immerse what they were jarring into that jar. And so that's what the word actually means. It's a very practical word. It's not a religious word, all right? And that's the source of it. And so, um, actually, when, when the early Roman Catholic Church, this is really in the beginning, uh, introduced pedobaptism, they actually first immerse babies. So they didn't always sprinkle on babies. They actually immersed them. But you can imagine the, you know, the, the, uh, the issue that would cause Hey, give me your baby. Kabunk. <laughs> you know, I'm sure the baby would freak out. And so basically, in order to make it a little less intrusive and traumatic, uh, they brought in just dropping a few water, you know, drops on the head. But even at the beginning, they knew what the word meant. The word baptism meant to be immersed. And to this day, the Greek Orthodox Church, which is also a break off of the Catholics and so forth, to this day, you go to any Greek Orthodox Church, and you watch a baptism, you know what they do? They immerse because they know what the Greek is. It doesn't make sense for them to do anything else, you know, except they do it differently. They actually will baptize forward by immersion three times for the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. But that's their methodology, you know. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, also, it, it became something later on where uh, they started to sprinkle or pour on people because they were sick. They says, oh, well, since they're sick, you know, we can't expect to immerse them. But even then, uh, what happened at the beginning, they would take barrels of water sometimes when a person's lying in the bed, and they would just whoosh, because they knew what the word baptism meant. But, of course, that's pretty crazy to do <laughs> in the hospital or wherever they chose to do it. And so, once again, that compromise took place because, oh, we want to make sure we do this properly for someone that is sick and so forth. And so, see, I would never do that. Baptism is always immersion, so it doesn't matter if you're sick or not or whatever. If you're saved, you want to be baptized, it has to be by immersion. Uh, one time we had a lady, she was 80-some years old. She was, uh, this is Allie's um, grandmother, and she had a deteriorating spine. Her spine was in very bad shape, and so what we did is we had a swimming pool and had someone to help me, and I sat her on a stool in the, in the shallow end, and I had someone just put their arm around along her back, and just very nicely, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness, and she had not one bit of pain. 
It just You just have to do it the right way, and you have to be as careful as you can. Uh, you know, there's been times I've seen people that, are, that, that didn't have legs get baptized and things like that. Nothing stopped them, you know. Uh, people that had, that had terminal diseases but were baptized. And so I don't believe in going to the hospital and just pouring water on them as some kind of a substitute for what the Bible says baptism is, which is complete immersion in the water for a very important reason. And so, uh, number two, the definition of the Koine Greek word baptizo is to dip, to immerse, or to submerge, or to fully overwhelm. So whatever is being placed in is being fully overwhelmed. It's not halfway, it's not partially, it's not just a little bit. It's complete immersion, complete dipping in. The, what's the low German for, for baptism? Neil? Yatofen? Okay, is that what it is? Is it Yatofen? I thought it was bedite. Yeah? And you'll be dipped, being placed into. Yeah, okay. I, I wasn't sure. I'm not that great in low German. So <laughs> Joe was here. <laughs> Amen. And so, uh, so we know that the word means to be fully overwhelmed, to be immersed, uh, to, to dip. It's amazing because within the Mennonite world, <coughs> that no low German and use that as, a, as the word for baptism, they still will go there and get poured on. I'm going to get bedite. Is it bedite or just dite? Both? Both? <laughs> okay. Bedite. I'm going to get bedite, which means to be dipped into, and all they do is pour on your head. So there's a change of definition right there again, you know, to, to fit what we're trying to do. And so um, we just go back, and that's why I believe the Lord gave us that tie to the original Greek word and transliterated it so that we wouldn't lose that that connection to the, uh, the, the, the origin of what that word is. And so the word baptism is not only used in regards to water. The Greeks, like I said, would use the word baptism for dyeing clothes, jarring pickles, whatever. It, it, anything that you'd be immersed would be baptized. Okay? Now we're going to look at the KJV definition. So many times you say, well, I don't know Greek, and you don't need to know Greek. In fact, the King James Bible always define itself. I'm not against using it. I know some people are. They say, oh, if you use Greek, you're a heretic. or whatever." No, I don't believe that at all. It's a tool. And just like you use a dictionary or anything else, but my authority always rests in the English Bible. Uh, if the Greek is different than the King James Bible, then there's something wrong with that Greek. Uh, somebody messed with that book, <laughs> you know. Uh, but I, I always hold to the King James Bible being authoritative. And so, but you don't need Greek definitions to decipher what baptism means. Uh, there are different baptisms mentioned in the Bible. The first one is John the Baptist had a baptism of repentance in water. And this is where we first became uh, familiar with the word baptism in the New Testament. John came baptizing in the Jordan. Acts 19 verse 4 then said, Paul, John very baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. And so it was a different baptism because the Messiah had not come. And what you had was 400 years of developing this Pharisaical religion that wasn't even based on Scripture, where, where the Pharisees were actually saying, we are keeping the law and this is what's going to get us to heaven. And so John came on the scene and he says, no, no, no. Uh, we need to refocus ourselves back on the Messiah, the one that will take away our sins, the future one that's going to come. He is the forerunner. He came before Jesus to prepare the way for the Lord. 
And so he used what, what the Bible calls the baptism of repentance, and it was issued simply for the children of Israel. It wasn't for the Gentiles. He was dealing with Israel at that time because he was trying to get them to refocus themselves back on the Messiah that was going to come, not on your law-based religion that you're going to heaven based upon how good you are, amen, like the Pharisees would teach. And so um, the second baptism we have is Christ's baptism of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 3, verse 11, it says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. This is John talking. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And so he will baptize with the Holy Ghost. Now, what's that referring to? You'd say, well, that's referring to every time a person gets saved. No, what's referring to there, and Jesus even referred to this, that in not many days hence, you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, speaking of the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was the baptism of the Spirit. That's when the Spirit came and the church was baptized into the, Holy, into the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. And so, not every, and this is where a lot of heresy, a lot of false teaching has come about, where they believe every time it talks about baptism of the Holy Spirit or whatever, that somehow it's, it's some uh, miraculous thing that's taking place. Even today, they talk about the baptism of the Spirit. It was a one-time event. Jesus came to baptize the church one time. Amen. After that, the Bible says that by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. So then after you get saved, you're placed into Christ as you get saved. That's another baptism. Amen. But the baptism that he's talking about is the baptism of Pentecost, where the Holy Ghost is going to come and empower the church for winning the lost in the world. All right. And so... And I, I wish I could give you some more scripture because I know some of you are saying, I don't know if I understand that. Um, I will teach on that again. <laughs> Amen. Letter C, Christ's baptism of fire. Notice how it says that he will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. I've heard uh, movements after, uh, you know, starting in the 1900s, especially uh, with the Pentecostal movement, talks about the baptism of fire. And they think that somehow that's some second blessing that you're getting uh, that's where even the Toronto airport, they would talk about catch the fire. I don't know if it's still their theme uh, phrase, uh, but what would take place is uh, this is where it all began, where that whole movement where they control the crowd and you would put your hands on them, they would fall down and they would make, you know, convulse in the aisleway or so forth. They would go back to their home churches and the same thing would happen there. So the theme would be called catch the fire. So instead of seeing this for what it really means, they think that the baptism of fire was actually some kind of a spiritual revival or renewal when it's not talking about it. It's actually a, a baptism of judgment. And if you read the next verse, it says, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's the baptism of fire. Not this second blessing thing. Uh, that started after the Methodist movement with the, all of the big meetings they had in the 1800s and so forth. And, and it really started um, with, with associating it with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. Then later on they would call it the second blessing. That, that would start the Pentecostal movement. And they would call it a second blessing. And so now they'd say, hey, have you had an upper room experience? <laughs> you know, 
referring to the baptism of Jesus, the Jesus's baptism of the Holy Ghost, that somehow you have to repeat that now. When it was a one-time historical event where the Lord sent the Holy Spirit down to empower the church. That only happened one time. Amen? And that's what Jesus said, I will baptize you with the Holy Ghost. And with fire, that means I will also judge. You'll be immersed in judgment. Those that aren't right, that aren't saved. Amen? And so it's, it's just crazy how people mistranslate scripture and they uh, make movements based upon that. Uh, the nation of Israel had a baptism into the cloud and the Red Sea. In 1 Corinthians 10 verse 1 it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So there we go again, the same word, being baptized unto Moses. So they were actually identified with Moses as they went through the Red Sea. And that going in, coming out, defines it. Or the cloud, the cloud passed over them. They, they were standing there. Remember the Egyptians were coming after them. The cloud overwhelmed them, went through them, and then went on the other side to keep the Egyptians at bay while the sea was being parted. So he says, you were baptized unto Moses, unto the faith of Moses, what, faith, what the faith that Moses shared with you. And so you actually identified with that as you crossed the Red Sea, okay? So there you see that baptism also has to do with identity, has to do with identification. So when you're baptized in the local New Testament church, you're identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ, not only just any Christ, because the Bible says there's a, they preach another Jesus unto you. There's many people that preach a Jesus that we don't believe. But it's the Jesus that we teach here in this church, and that's why you're here. You're here because you're agreeing with the doctrine of this church. You agree with who Jesus Christ is and the way that we present him from the Scripture. Now, if you don't agree with that, then you're in the wrong church. <laughs> you should find one that you do agree with. But you should never be baptized if you don't agree with the, the Christ that we're preaching here. Amen? In this church. And so it's talking about identification. So you're being identified with the Lord Jesus Christ as you're being baptized here. And that's why everybody says, Amen. And they call you brother. And they say, Hey, you're one of us. Because they know now that you have identified with them. You've identified with the church, with the same Christ, the same faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen. Your, your, your baptism uh, associates to your faith. Your faith reveals your Lord. Amen. It's all tied together, the identification of it. Now, let's move on. Let me read. Each one of these I could preach a message on, and I'm sorry I have to go through these very quickly. Uh, the spiritual baptism of every believer into Christ's body. So now, after the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit has been given to the church to empower the church, now, every time someone gets born again, the Spirit takes us and places us into the body of Christ. That's called the Spirit baptism. Amen. Uh, know ye not that as many of you as put on Christ have been baptized or have bap been baptized into his death? I think I put two verses together. But you've been baptized into his death. You were immersed into his death. You were completely placed into. And that's great because when the Father looked at Jesus and his death for sin, he saw you in there. And if he saw you in there, that means you owe no more penalty. Now, if you're not in Christ's death, then you still owe a penalty of death. So you hide yourself. Your life is hid with God in Christ, the Bible says. So when you got saved, it was like he placed you into the death of Christ 
And so your death has now been paid for. Amen? Because you're hid within the death of Christ. And then immediately after that, you were buried and risen with him, and you're already seated with him in the heavenlies. So there's no way to repeat that. It's a one-time event. And that's why the Bible says one baptism. That reference to that verse in Ephesians chapter uh, 4, verse 5, it's not talking about water. It's talking about the one time you're placed into the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot repeat that. You can't lose it and go back and do it again. And that's why Hebrews chapter 6 says, if you could lose it, then you would, <laughs> then it says it's impossible for them. That's what the word is. It's impossible for you to be renewed again unto repentance. That means if you could lose your salvation, you could never be saved again. Because Jesus Christ would have to come back and die again. Because obviously his first death meant nothing. It didn't cover your sins. It didn't deal with your sins. And so the Bible says that you, you bring him into open shame and you have to crucify him afresh. And you read Ephesians, Hebrews chapter 6 and those are the words it uses. It's like I have, to, I have to kill Jesus again. And that brings him to open shame because he's the one to blame. <laughs> Amen. Pull with that devil sneaky with that losing salvation doctrine. Amen. It's an attack on Christ. It's not an attack on you. You never deserved it. You're never good enough to have it. You're never good enough to keep it. It was given to you by Christ and what he did on the cross. And if you lost your salvation, it's Jesus' fault. Wow. Well, then, of course, I can't lose my salvation. I know you can't. It's impossible. And if you could lose it, then you're lost forever. Because you'd have to convince Jesus somehow to come fix his mistake. <laughs> you get what I'm saying there? All right, that's good doctrine, folks. That's good Bible teaching there. I hope you get that. All right? And so for by one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, have been all made to drink into one spirit. So that spirit joins us together in the body of Christ. Amen? So this is not just a, uh, just a gathering of people. It's not just an organization. It's not just a club. This is an organism. Just like a local church has a birth, it has a death. Every church is born, every church dies. Because it's not a club, it's an organism. Amen? So when you, are, you get placed into this body, you are part of a living body. It's not just a bunch of people that have a name on a list. <laughs> Amen? And we have to see it like that. And when you do, then you begin to see your responsibility and accountability within that body. You're not playing games with the, with the children of God or the, or the body of Christ. Amen? It's very serious. And so that's why you also have to be saved in order to be a part of a local New Testament church. All right? Let's see here. Let's move on. Uh, then the last one here is the water baptism of the obedient believer into the local church. And so we'll baptize people here. After they get saved, the Bible says the Great Commission is to preach the gospel to them and then baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we'll do. We'll immerse them as a picture of how, what baptism is, being placed into the body of Christ, into his death. That's why we take you backwards into the water and we bring you back up again because we don't want you to die. We want you to live because you're resurrected. Amen. You're not staying in the death. You're resurrected out of the water. Amen. All right. Number two, the mode of baptism is as seen in the Bible. Uh, references showing that baptism refers to being placed into something. And I'll just read some of these to you. Romans 6, 3. Know ye not that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So you're defining what the word baptism means with these passages. Into. 
Amen. Uh, Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Uh, then we, the, first, the, the verse we read before, 1 Corinthians 12.13, For by one Spirit are you all baptized into one body, uh, into the body. Um, Acts 38, remember the aspect of uh, Philip and the eunuch? You know, they were, uh, Philip found him on the desert. The Holy Spirit led him to him, and he was reading the Bible. And the Lord said, you know, join yourself to that chariot. And he asked, do you understand what you read? He says, how can I understand unless some, some man guide me? And he was reading from the book of Isaiah. And, and so Philip began to teach to him Jesus out of that passage in Isaiah, how that he was the lamb that was led to the slaughter. And he believed right there that the Ethiopian eunuch just believed. Now, I believe that the Ethiopian eunuch was a part of a, a bigger um, entourage than just one person. They, it was a royal thing. It was something they were, they were going all the way back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. They came for the time of the Pentecost, and they were going back again. <laughs> Amen? So it was a big deal, which means they had water with them. They would have had a few cups of water kicking around. But you know what he said is, he says, and he commanded the chariot to stand still, and they went down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. They went down into the water. And the first thing the eunuch said is, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Well, he would have, could have pointed to his canteen and says, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? Right? No, he didn't do that because he'd done that at any point on the trip. But he waited until he got to a body of water. And then he says, oh, here's water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? Because he's talking about being immersed. <laughs> Amen. Not just poured on with, with a teacup or whatever else. All right. And so uh, references showing that we are coming up out of something in Matthew 3.16. Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. You ever seen those pictures and maybe those family Bibles of Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist? He's standing in the water till his belly, and then John the Baptist is pouring some on his head. You ever seen that? My goodness. No, the Bible says he came up straightway out of the water. And when that took place, that's when the Holy Spirit descended. Amen? And so you got to be careful with some of those family Bibles because a lot of those pictures are actually depicted by those that belong to the Catholic system. And the long-haired Jesus is the same thing. Jesus did not have long hair. Most people believe that because they saw the picture. Well, I saw his picture. He must have long hair. <laughs> no, nobody took his picture, all right? It's all depictions of people hundreds of years after the time, you see. The Bible says that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. So Jesus is going to have long hair working against the very scripture that he gave them to write down in the Bible. No, he didn't have long hair, you know. He had short hair, you know. And it's not that hard for them to have short hair in the Bible days. They, they had tools to do it, amen. And so they had to cut their hair at some point, you know, what length, you know. And so, anyways, let's move on. All right, um, Romans 6, verse 5, For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So those things always go hand in hand. If there's a death, there's a resurrection. If there's an in, there's an out. Amen? If you go into the water, then you come out of the water. And that's what we see in the scripture. That's a definition of baptism. Uh, they needed much water to be baptized into. In John 3, verse 23, it gives the account of John the Baptist. And John also was baptizing an aeon near Salim, 
because there was much water there. Why was he baptizing in this particular place? Because there was much water there. Well, why do you need much water, John? Well, because I'm trying to baptize, immerse people in the water. So he went to that particular place because there was much water there. Amen? And they came and were baptized. Uh, same with the Ethiopian eunuch. He waited until he got to a body of water, till there was much water. Amen? Now, I'm not saying you can't uh, be inventive here. I've seen during the Iraq war, I remember there were soldiers, you know, that were baptized in the desert. So what they would do is they would dig a hole into the sand and they would line it with plastic and they would fill it up with water and they would baptize them right in the middle of the desert. But they'd do it by full immersion, by digging the hole in the sand, you know. So, I mean, if you want to do it, I mean, if you had six inches of water in a creek, if you just dig a hole, it would fill up as, med- as far as you dig down, <laughs> you know. So you can always, you know, <laughs> immerse no matter where you are as long as there's much water to fill the hole. Amen. All right, so number two, the model of baptism. Baptists have always baptized a certain way to model or picture a greater spiritual truth. And like I said, you know, even with the Greek Orthodox, how they would, they would baptize forward the death, the, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They, they think that's what it was referring to. We've never held to that. We believe it's just one time being placed in and then brought out. All right, so one is fully immersed in water because the believer is fully immersed into Christ's body at salvation. And we have already gone through those verses. Uh, One is baptized in a backward motion to model the death of Christ. Know you not that many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. And so when they put him in the tomb, he was placed on his back. And so that was a sign that you are dead, you know. And so when you're getting baptized, you're really making a statement. You're saying, okay, I believe that Jesus Christ... Uh, died for my sins and rose again, but you're also saying, I'm dead with Christ. I'm crucified with him. And so you're, in the same way that he was laid back, you're being laid back as a symbol of that. In the same way that he was resurrected, you're brought back up. So it's not just something you do because somebody told you to do it. It's something you do because in your heart, you know that something has changed and you want to live a different life and you want to follow a life of faith a new life. Amen? So it's not something to be trifled with or play with. You know, it means something. Uh, so one is also brought up out of the water to model the, Christ, the, the, uh, the resurrection of Christ. So it says, therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we be planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. So in the same way that the, the resurrection marks a new beginning of life for you, uh, go, some news for you, when you get resurrected in your, in your glorious body, things will not be the same ever again. It's going to be a completely different world for you. Amen? Just imagine that day when Jesus calls you home and bam, just like that. Where he comes and he takes the church and he calls them up and the dead in Christ are raised first. I mean, your body is transformed into into a body like Christ's glorious body. I mean, that's a new beginning. It's a new, perfect beginning. And that's the the picture that we're bringing when we're getting baptized in a local church. You're saying, this is a new beginning for me. Amen? You're not playing games with God. You're not doing this because your friend did it. You're not doing it because you want to have the Lord's Supper. (laughs) Kids sometimes do that. I don't got baptized. I want to take the Lord's Supper. You know? 
You got to wade through some of that because it's, it's more than that. It's you starting on a new life, you know, and there's more proof of that. We'll get into that next week. Um, so the baptism is actually the placement into the water. The raising out of the water pictures the resurrection. And ministry on earth always begins with baptism. Remember Jesus Christ? He did not do a thing until he was baptized. No ministry, no miracles. He did nothing. He showed up one day, John the Baptist. John baptized him. That started the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when you're, when you're baptized and you're showing that in a public way to the local church, that is the beginning of your ministry. That's the beginning. Amen? Up till that point, you've been saved, but you haven't really done anything for God yet until you're unashamedly identifying with the Lord Jesus Christ in believer's baptism. He says, now you identify with me, now let's get you moving forward. Baptism is vital. Amen? That's why I always tell even young men that are called to ministry, and, they, and I say, just make sure you, you do this the right way. Got a good baptism. Because as you go forth in your ministry, you know, you want to make sure you've done everything the right way. Everything's got to be right. Amen? And so, anyways, uh, we don't have a whole lot more time here. Uh, I think we have enough for a second part of this next week. And I understand I'm not trying to question anybody's baptism or make you feel bad about what, you know, what you've been involved with. I remember there's been some people, they say, man, this is my fifth baptism. Baptized five times. I was, we were the fifth times, and I said, well, this will be your last time. That's the kind of world we're in today. There's so many movements out there, so many connections that you make. And, you know, I was baptized as a baby first, and then I got involved with this movement. I was baptized there. And in each one of those situations, you were identifying with the group that you were baptized with. So do you want to keep being identified with them? Or do you want to move on? Amen? And so that's important. And that's why sometimes I've talked to people. I says, you know, the group that you were involved with there, there's something not right there, something doctrinally unsound. And it'd be better for you to be baptized, to identify with a, a pure doctrine, with, with a, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that's proper. Amen? Especially as you move forward and you want to serve him. Because people are going to ask you. <laughs> and they're going to associate that. And there's the aspect of that association that you got to consider. All right? Anyways, uh, there's much more to say. Uh, and we'll get to that.